back and they're at it again. I had to physically separate the two of them in the studio here. Well, I had to show them to their chairs, actually. Maybe not physically separate them. Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. Nice to see you again, guys. Thank you. I missed you last week. I actually thought about you on Wednesday. At that point in time, I was interviewing a government guy, and I actually flashed for a second that right now the guys are back there with Ed and doing the left, right, and center. You had a good time last week? Yeah, it was yes, fun. Eddie took good care of you? Certainly did. did. Good. <laughs> Today, uh, you are prepared to discuss... I'm, I understand. Linda McQuaig's new book, The Cult of Impotence. Now, I haven't read the book, but I've uh, interviewed Linda a couple of times. I'm familiar with the premise of the book. I've read some of the reviews of the book. Essentially, she's saying that we have deluded ourselves or our leaders have deluded themselves or our leaders have attempted to delude us um, by suggesting that there is such a thing as global imperatives economically, that, that the global culture, global trade cannot be ignored, that no country can resist this globalization, um, that, uh, that we are at the mercy of the markets and that we must make our decisions based on the needs and wants and desires of the marketplace and that any country who doesn't do that is going to be doomed to economic uh, second-class citizenship. Am I right so far, Jeff? Yep. Okay. Um, Robert, I'm going to ask you, since Jeff agrees with what I said was right, what's wrong with her premise? I mean, certainly, certainly we have kind of kowtowed to this, can I use the word ephemeral sense of global, nobody really knows what globalization really means economically. We're, we're not sure even what the rules are yet. We don't know how suddenly in the last 10 years globalization has become, it's become the buzzword. Uh, many people aren't, we don't understand that. What's wrong with her premise? She says we don't have control. Do we have control? <coughs> of course we do. Uh, to suggest that we're at the mercy of the markets is, is a contradiction in terms. We are the market. So we're at our own mercy, so to speak. It, it's a meaningless sentence. It, it, uh, you know, the global imperative has always been there. Every person on the face of this planet wants to survive and they want to survive in the, the best way possible and something that suits their choice and lifestyle. When, I think when we talk about globalization, we're talking about all of us on this planet living under a common set of rules and principles and that the battle today is over what those rules and principles shall be. And uh, from what I know of Linda McQuaig's uh, argument here in, in the cult of impotence is that she, she thinks that the whole answer to everything is we need more democracy, that we can vote ourselves into prosperity. And uh, I just don't think that's possible. If it were, we would have done it a long time ago. Well, Jeff, what's wrong with that premise? Well, the key pr problem is that, uh, and she basically uh, goes through the history of the Liberal government since they were elected in 1993, and at the time they had said that their, that their key promise to Canadians was that they were going to reduce unemployment. They were uh, elected in the middle of uh, the deepest recession since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, but shortly after they got into government, there's another book called Double Vision uh, that also documents mm -hmm. this. Paul Martin was persuaded by the uh, Minist Ministry of Finance that unemployment was not the big... Uh, the big bad thing to worry about, but that the deficit was, and that everything had to take second, um, a backseat to the deficit, including unemployment. And in fact, he was persuaded that high unemployment is necessary for prosperity uh, in the modern economy. Uh, and that goes back to Milton Friedman's ideas about a natural rate of unemployment, and that is that uh, the worst thing that can happen in an economy is inflation, and inflation is caused by uh, rising wages effectively, and rising wages are caused when People, when unemployment is low and employers have to pay employees more money to keep them working. And uh, the theory goes that you have to have unemployment that is uh, fairly high in order to keep 
people uncertain enough about their jobs that they won't ask for raises. And in fact, what's happened in Canada in the latter part of the 90s is, of course, the recession ended. We got back to economic prosperity about theoretically three years ago. Since that time, we've seen huge profitability. We've had the banks posting record profits each year. Corporate salaries have gone through the roof each year. The stock market has been at record levels, the uh, TSE, for six years now. And what's happened is that there's been huge inflation, if you like, in the uh, value of stocks and bonds. The, co the value of them has gone up dramatically. And the only way that uh, you can have a, basically a flat line on inflation when that's happening is that you have to have deflationary pressure on wages. Because essentially inflation is, is a measure of what things cost to buy. But the measure of what things cost to buy is determined by how much people have to spend. Pay more money to buy stuff. And we've seen, for instance, right now that it takes a, it's a year and a half waiting list to get a new Mercedes 4x4 that for... Um, for people at the upper end of the market, there's a huge amount of, of purchasing going on. So where you've got that, that would create inflationary pressure, but for the fact that wages have remained flat. And uh, in fact, when you take into consideration uh, that there is some inflation, in fact, the average uh, earning power of the average middle class person in Canada today is significantly less than it was eight or nine years ago. So what she says is that uh, Paul Martin was persuaded that he had to fight the deficit in order to f keep inflation down, that inflation was the worst bugbear in the Canadian economy, and uh, as a result of that decided to let uh, unemployment go. And you may recall that he had set tight, defi tight deficit targets and said, I will meet these deficit targets. And in fact, he met them ahead of schedule. But on the question of unemployment, the Liberal government has always said, we will not be pinned down to any number. Uh, you know, inflation will hopefully come down at some point down the road. But it really hasn't very much, considering we're three years into a boom but she, economy. She talks a lot about democracy. And the, the Canadian people, I think, as an observer, uh, I would like to think a modestly informed observer, the Canadian people have supported the policy. The Canadian people do not want the federal government to create jobs. We haven't seen that, and, and traditionally... The government that, can't create well, jobs. But you know what I'm saying. They a can, physical impossibility. But you know what I'm saying, Robert. They can, they can put people on a payroll, and the governments in the past have done that. They have put people on a payroll. Uh, the, the dem you know, the, the dem our democracy, Canadians don't want that to happen. Oh, yeah, and she hasn't suggested that either. That she hasn't suggested that uh, the way to, pro to prosperity is by having the government hire everybody. But what she's saying is that the interest rate policy of the government determines how uh, well or unwell the economy is. And that back in the late 80s, when John Crow was the governor of the Bank of Canada, he decided as an experiment, uh, and, and it was endorsed by a number of economists at the time, to try to kill inflation for all time. And the way he did it was by raising interest rates far higher than they were in the United States. The thinking is that he overkilled the Canadian economy and left it in much worse shape. Mm -hmm. Bankruptcies were at record levels. And our recession was much worse than their recession was. But one of the They're only slowly climbing out of that now. One of the reasons to, to set those interest rates higher in the U.S. at the time was to attract investment to this country. If people invested in this country, that would create jobs. That would create uh, all, the, all the productivity and, and opportunity that you want to see. But what uh, happened the in problem fact was, was the government into a deep, deep recession, though. Right, because the government was inflating the currency and spending like crazy. You know, Milton Friedman, by the way, never said that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's inflation versus unemployment. What he said was that you will have unemployment as a natural consequence of either beating inflation or allowing inflation to run amok. It works on both ends of the scale. You're going to have unemployment as a side effect. It has nothing, it's not a cause and effect. It's just 
it's a side effect of of change of changing markets, changing systems, people moving from one one area of activity to another. So you know, Linda McQuaig's talking about we can have full employment. I don't know what she means by that. What, what's the rate of full employment? A hundred percent? Well, if you look at the United States, you got an example where their unemployment rate right now is about four percent. It's less than half of what ours is. And again, her thesis is that uh, a reason for that is that they didn't push the inflation button nearly as hard, and that uh, the American government had chosen not to raise interest rates as far to uh, to try and kill uh, and yet the American inflation. government has still mounted an attack on on the deficit spending I mean they've been they've been pretty aggressive down there too well yeah and I say it's not just a question of the deficit it's also a question of where you set your interest rate that is the higher you set your interest rate the more you dampen down uh, the economy the higher interest rates are, the harder it is for people to borrow money for investment and so on, and the sicker the economy but gets. But you know, our interest rates in, in this country have been at record real, the real interest rate, the difference between the rate of inflation and the in nominal interest rate have been at record lows now for how many years? Three, four years in this country. Why is she still complaining? Well, I don't know. I, I, when you say the, the, the difference, the difference, I would say, is still pretty high because our inflation is very low. The difference between the rate of inflation of what's a percent, percent and a half well, a year. Well, I think, I think about rate. almost 2%, and you've got, you've got uh, a prime now, at depending on where you go, at 5, 5 and a half. You've got, you've got real interest rates of 3 and 4% and have had them for a number of years. Unprecedented lows for, for a, a significant period of time. If you think back to the uh, to the uh, uh, um, back to the early 1980s when when interest rates went at some places in the high teens here in this country, yeah, 22 percent at yeah, one point. Inflation inflation at the same time was running six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent depending on when you looked at it. But the real rate of inflation or the real rate of interest was ten percent, eleven percent, twelve percent. The difference between those two now it's three and four percent. Well, now and I I recall back to a little bit of economics that I took in university. They had said that an interest rate a rate of return that you should receive for investing money should be a matter of a couple of percent over inflation. Uh, we seem to have gotten used to this high rate of return. And what we've seen is an, an economy today where if you have money to invest, uh, you make a lot of money. But there but isn't a high rate of return today. Don't make a, there isn't a high return. Well, there's a huge rate of return. Look, look at the, the stock market. We've had record closes with the TSE for uh, every, every month for the last but six you years. Could, you could lose it all tomorrow. Yeah, but you're not. Statistically, we're not, that we're not talking about, no, But we're not talking about buying stocks. We're talking about borrowing money. We're talking about that interest rate. You don't pay an interest rate when you buy a stock. You pay interest when you borrow money. I know, but interest is a rate of return on money that you invest. But the other thing that she goes back to is she says that a reason why the federal government decided to, uh, to abandon the fight against unemployment effectively was because the global economy wouldn't permit it. She said that if the uh, Canadian government... Uh, did anything dramatic about trying to reduce unemployment, then what? Then the uh, global markets would effectively respond the way they did in um, in Indonesia, for instance, where they uh, there was a huge flight of capital out of that country. But didn't that didn't that happen here, Bob? Help me here. Well, but that's did, only that happened in 1980 here in this country. I, I'm I'm trying to grasp what Jeff's getting at here. Like, what's the solution in your mind, Jeff? I mean, what are you calling for here, and what is Linda McQuaig calling for? Well, I mean, a all she says there, if I look by the Free Press, uh, you know, we can solve our problems. Quote: If we just tell the rich, no more. Is that going to solve the problems of this country, is to tell the rich that, what, they can't have any more money? Is that what you're going to do, pass well, the law? Well, that's part of it. One of the things that certainly happened in the way the economy is structured right now is that we have this huge disparity between rich and poor. As I said, we've had a huge uh, profitability in, uh, in the market in the last several years. At the same time, the wages have been flat for the middle class. Uh, real income for poor people has gone down dramatically. And yeah, she says that there's no reason why the rich have to keep getting richer. That's not a healthy thing for us as a society. I see in the, the free press today, it says that uh, this article in the business 
has a section saying that the number of wealthy people in the world, that is people with more than a million dollars U.S., is exploding right well, now. Well, the issue going is up dramatically. The, the issue is not the rich. The issue is the poor. But in it's Canada, it's a good thing to get more wealth and have more wealth, regardless of where you, where you get it. If you get it from your neighbor, that's not necessarily a good thing. In this case, in Canada, there, I guess. No, it depends uh, how you get it, not where you get it. It depends on whether you get it voluntarily through a consensual two-way. You know, marketplace transaction, or whether you obtain it by force, it's not it's not where you get it from; it's how you get it. But in an economy that's static, where there's a fixed amount of wealth, uh, nobody seriously suggests. But pardon me, the, pardon me, say that again. An economy that's static, static, where there's a fixed amount what of wealth. What planet is that on? Well, either we can you show me the planet that no. there's such a such a thing? I don't know how you can right, say well, such a thing. If you, if you prefer absurd, to, yeah. if you prefer to listen, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to sort of frame this issue. But if you want to well, talk about an economy framing, that's expanding, you can a, say that uh, an expanding economy should only result in increasing wealth for the wealthy. I don't know how realistic that is either, but we that. can characterize it that way if you want. What it comes back to, again, is that right now, the way things are, is that we have this high unemployment. We have economists telling us that that's a good thing. We have to have this high rate of unemployment to kill inflation. Well, why no, do we want inflation? The reason is because we've got inflation. such profitability amongst people who have money to invest that that would be very inflationary, but for the fact that the rest of us don't get pay raises, and the reason we don't get pay raises is because of high unemployment. So you're, so the opposite to that is, okay, we should have more inflation, and I guarantee you that will give you more unemployment. Well, she, she identified a couple of things. One of them was this huge increase in the number of ultra-wealthy people in Canada. Ernst & Young says since 1989, since the peak of our good times in the, uh, in the 80s, the number of uh, millionaires has tripled. So what? So during the time of the recession, we wanna, tripled so the number what? of millionaires so that what? we had. At the same time, we also saw child poverty going through the roof. We have this huge disparity where the rich are getting much richer, the poor are getting much poorer. We have to ask, is that a good, healthy thing for our society? I would say it's not. I, 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 I would agree that people getting poorer is not a good thing, but whether you're middle class or poor or rich, everyone's objective is to get be better off the day at the end of the day than yeah, at the course. beginning of the day. And, I, and I've never suggested that people shouldn't go out and work hard well, how, and they should be rewarded for that. How is stopping that? the rich from being rich going to help the poor? That's what I want to Again, it's a question where the money comes from. Okay, let's, uh, let's pause for a moment here. We will continue <laughs> with left, right, and center and take your calls to Lauren's waiting. He'll be up right after this. Morning to you, Lauren. How are you? Fine, thank you. Yeah, I have to take issue to with one of the gentlemen there, the one who said, what planet do you live on? Mm -hmm. I forget his name. Uh, Bob Metz. Bob, sorry. Mm -hmm. I thought it was Bob, but I wanted to make sure before I said it. Yeah. Uh, just anecdotally, I mean, I think the average wage earner is, is falling behind. Well, well, that's I, not I the, agree with that's you. not what Bob was. That's not what he made his his point in reference to, though. In fairness, no, Jeff, that's Jeff not, had that, made that a comment. Particular point, but no, I but, mean, but Jeff had made a comment about a finite amount of wealth. Yeah, and and he, this, said, he said that the that the economy is static, and I said, no, I said if, you pa thing. if you pause it, well, that. can you can can I, can I just say something here? Do you think that the, that the economy that that the the way things are are set up? are set up for the average wage earner? I don't believe that. I mean, how come, how come uh, stocks and, and, and uh, um, stock transactions aren't taxed? What's, what's the big deal with that? Because they're not taxed until a profit or loss is gained or realized why, why not at, the at a point of sale. Itself? Even like a half percent, like that uh, Tobin rule that, uh, that uh, has been proposed on the international scale. Well, why, why going would you, back and forth. Why, if we're going to move to one economy... Why, why is it that, Lauren, that Lauren, that can't be touched? Lauren, hang on. You, yeah. you know, here you are, you're worried about how every, the average guy's falling behind, and you're, the only thing you can see is adding another tax to somebody somewhere in society, which is, which is the average guy. There's the reason why the average guy is falling behind, is because of the tax rate in Canada, which is one of the highest in the world. Oh, so I need to say, Canada's not rise, have high taxes. Certainly will rise up. And we'll all live in a great society. But it's interesting no. that uh, Linda McQuaig actually talks extensively about the Tobin tax that you've referred to, and uh, that was the tax that was proposed back in 1972 by James Tobin, who's an economist at Harvard. And basically, what he had said is that the main 
reason that governments can't control their own uh, social policy and fiscal policy right now is because of the money traders and the speculation in the international market. And what he had proposed was the tax not to raise revenue, but to discourage uh, uh, transactions that were strictly for the purpose of speculation. And right now there are trillions of dollars so every year that are changing hands. Well, they're just okay. going to throw the money away they raised? No, he's saying that people won't make speculative transactions if they can't make money on it. Yeah, so but what he's saying is that if you want to invest money in a country, you keep it there and then you'll pay a tiny tax. And he, he suggested a tiny tax. But the problem is that we've got people who are speculating and trading uh, money hundreds of times a day. That would add up. And basically his whole point was we have to discourage that in order that people invest in countries based on their real value and not on the hope that they can make a speculative may I ask, buck. May I just ask one question here yes. or make an observation. I think the average person, all they want is a sense of fairness, that everyone is paying their fair share or their amount. Mm -hmm. And when you read about huge corporations not paying taxes and individuals, because of the way the tax, uh, um, uh, taxes are set up, can, can funnel money and get high, high uh, write-offs, et cetera, et cetera. I'd like you to discuss, if you could, a flat tax, 25%. percent i have I'm, five jobs, I pay 25% of every penny I make, and that includes, that includes uh, Bell Canada and Shell and, mm -hmm. and, and Conrad Black and everybody else. What is wrong with that? And if there is something wrong with that, I really would like to know. I'll hang up well, and I'll listen to your discussion. All right, thanks oh. for the call, Lauren. And, and, Lauren, you need to recognize this is Bob Metz who's going to respond to you now. He's the fellow you were concerned yeah. about his earlier comment. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm totally in favor of a flat tax. I've always advocated one, although the rate you suggest at 25%, I think, is exorbitant. Um, I would suggest a flat tax of about 5 or 10% to, to basically fund what I regard as, as legitimate government functions. Um, and then perhaps even move to a more voluntary and free, free tax system. But, the, but, but to add more taxes and to suggest that people who are speculating and, and working in the markets and stuff is just adding more confusion to the whole situation and taking more productivity out of the whole system. If I want to gamble with my money, I mean, if, that's basically what people are doing sometimes on the stock market is that they're gambling and they haven't won or lost yet until they've sold those stocks. And, yeah, they do pay taxes on it if they make money. It, it gets incorporated into the, their personal income. Just, not if they have a good lawyer. Well, <laughs> well and I think, let, let, let's be clear about that issue, too. And, and Jeff is a lawyer. There is no question that our tax code in this country is somewhat cumbersome. And there is also little question that with the right high-powered lawyers, you can avoid paying some taxes. But, but my research, and I've done a fairly extensive amount of research, suggests to me that the corporations are not getting away scot-free. They are paying significant amounts of taxes, and the, and the shareholders of the corporation, this is where people think corporation made a zillion dollars and didn't pay any taxes. The corporation itself may not have, but all the profits that come out of that corporation were heavily taxed when they went to the people who collected the profits. And I just, just in the interest of fairness, I think people need to recognize that. There's a lot of talk about such and such a corporation made a million dollars last year and didn't pay a dime. Well, that isn't because the, the law didn't make them pay the taxes they owed. Maybe they lost a million the year before and the two balanced out. I mean, well, these are the kinds of things, in a, in a fair but, discussion, these are the kind of things we have to keep in mind. But even the basic thinking to suggest that you've got to tax profits, which are the only place you're going to get jobs and, and equity and, and redistribution of wealth eventually through the marketplace, is, is just giving all the money to the government. Okay, we're going to go back to the, to the phones with uh, caller Robert. Hello, Robert. Hello, uh, Jim. I just wanted to make some comments on some of the... Uh, discussion so far. Uh, number one, that the the official U.S. rate of uh, help want, or, uh, unemployment is maybe four percent, but I mean, I'm telling you, uh, it's practically zero because there's uh, even in the New York Times, there's uh, there's help wanted. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is our newspaper? Yeah, I've got a friend in uh, in Michigan who's opening a business in Michigan, and they can't find people to work there. That's right. They can't find them. 
Um, and uh, the uh, what I'd like to say is uh, that I think the uh, you know the creation of more wealth by whoever, whether it's rich or poor, is always a good thing. Of course. Um, and I, I I'd like to characterize Jeff's uh, um, view on this as uh, what I describe as the politics of envy, where they're always you know um, in, in in an envious position of anyone that that does well, whether it's a company or a, or a person, and um, the. Uh, you know, my point about Jeff is uh, he's saying, well, you know, it depends where the money comes from. But, like, he, so he's implying that the money is coming from the poor. But this, how can that be? Because by definition, the poor don't have any money. So how can the rich make their money on the backs of the poor? I guess uh, one of the questions is whether you think that's the way it should be, that we should have a, a, a status, a class, or a caste in our society of poor who have no money. Is well, that a no, healthy the, society? That, that's, not a, that's not a thing that's determined by... It shouldn't be determined by government policy. It should be determined by individuals. Um, but the other thing of my comment on uh, uh, your definition of uh, you know that speculation should be taxed. Um, but you know then you run into the problem of well who's going to determine what speculation is and what it isn't? And then you've got another whole government system interfering in what should essentially be private enterprise and and a voluntary. Um, enterprise between individuals in the society. Well, we already have heavy regulation in relation to the stock market, for instance. There's all kinds of speculation that's not permitted. Junk bonds are a good example that were effectively shut down in the United States. So we already have uh, substantial right, regulation of speculation because we recognize that unbridled speculation can be bad. Yes, and I'm not saying there's not rules for it. There's not, there's not a government policy in informing uh, uh, some, some regulations. Um, but w what you're talking about is is uh, wholeheartedly, uh, you know, redistributing money from from one end of the uh, economic scale to the other by government fiat. Yeah, and the question is whether it's better to make sure that we have a whole class of people who literally do have nothing. And realistically, they don't right now because we have a socialistic right country there, where they get welfare but, checks every month. They don't have nothing. We decide how much they're going to get as a society. But the question is ultimately, what kind of city do you want to live in? What kind of, of country do you want to live in? I'd like to live in one where people get along and people don't uh, sort of feel the need to have people who have millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in a city next to a bunch of people who have virtually nothing. And to say that the millions and millions of millions of dollars have been created out of thin air and have not been taken from other people effectively, but what they could contribute to society is just a pipe dream. Realistically, we have Come a certain on, amount yeah. of resources in our country, but what we've seen over the last number of years is not that the poor are staying static and the rich are getting much richer because they're a lot smarter. But We're seeing the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting well, poorer. There's I think the there's a causal relationship there. Again. The politics of envy. That's, that's, that's what I describe that whole argument as, and I just don't buy it. I, yeah, I don't well, think that a person's economic well-being should be, you know, you're always saying we should determine we're this and we're that. It, I, I think all those things that you're talking about is it can only be accomplished by government dictate. And what I'm saying is that a society should be free for individuals and businesses to do their business without a third-party government sticking their neck in it and determining, you know, who's, who's wealthy and who shouldn't be and Robert, you know, all this kind of yeah, stuff. Appreciate your call today. Thank okay, you, sir. Thanks. Just like to point out, I just came from a country where there are no rich and poor. Everybody's poor. Six four three twelve ninety. Andrew joins us. Hello, Andrew. Hey, guys. Yes, sir. I'm with Bob on this one. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's the poor people have to realize that, you know, 
they've got to learn how to invest and how to handle their own money. Like the first thing they do, they get out of school or something, they run up such huge debt. Like isn't Canada have now, like what was it, Visa or someone did a study with $64 billion in debt on credit? Mm-hmm. And like there's no, not very many people have much in savings accounts anymore? I think they're into a huge debt before they get out of school in most cases nowadays. Yeah, yeah. what's the problem with that? Again, we come back to that old argument. So what? Well, again, it's, it's a question of what kind of society do you want to have? Do you want to have a society where only wealthy people can send their kids to university? Again, we go back to an aristocracy system, which we had in Europe in the 1700s. No, no. Is that a so better do system? Do we have a better society? Do you want a, you want, you want, you want a system that? where only the rich people can open a little business? I mean, I, I would say it's a system where the people who are the, mo- the smartest, the hardest working should get ahead. That's the problem, is that when we get away from that, we get into the system where if you're wealthy, you have money to invest, then you make a huge amount of money. If you're smart uh, that, and hard that's working, not money based on hard you can't work. It's ahead. money based on the fact that you have money. Right now, if you have money, you make money on but your investments. That doesn't mean that smart, hardworking people can't get ahead. They, they, that's what they aspire to. That's why they work hard. Oh, sure it is. What's happening is we end up with a system like the Ivy League in the United States where you can't go to university unless you're wealthy. Realistically, that's the system that they have. Is that the best system? I would suggest not. What we want is to have our best and brightest getting our most education to make our society as Don't they do that now? rich as we can. Oh no! What's happening in Canada is we're getting. When I went to university, my tuition for uh, law school was about seven hundred bucks a year. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays we're moving to the MBA, and I had applied for MBA at the same or yeah. HBA at the same time. Same same thing. Mm-hmm. Within the next two years, the tuition is going to be twenty thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. That is going to shut out a lot of people. And if you think that the Ontario what? Student Loan Program is going to come in to help them, it won't. Well, dramatically, it dramatically underfunded. Well, it needs to, we doesn't have... it? Are we oh, yeah. agreeing on that? Sure. But yeah. the fact that that isn't going to do it, that's not a reason to not put those things up to market value, to put that education to market value. That's a failure on the part of the government to provide the financing to do it. But if the government can't do it right, it shouldn't do it. Well, I won't argue that. We appreciate the call today. <laughs> Thank you, sir. And we have Robert waiting. Hello, Robert. Hi, Jim. Yes, sir. Um, I guess like your previous callers, I'm with, uh, with Bob on this one. I'm a small businessman. Um, I will consider myself to be lower middle class, if not poor, depending on how you want to look at it and what, uh, what I can afford. I, I have a couple of observations based on your discussion. First is that as a, as a businessman, as a, as a person trying to make a living, there's only two things in my mind which determine whether or not I'm, I'm successful. Mm-hmm. That is my willingness to work and the government intrusiveness in my business. Those two things determine how successful I am. Mm-hmm. Um, your previous caller, Robert, had an interesting, uh, interesting comment about the politics of greed or envy, I think he said. And, and I've seen this before in uh, Linda McQuaig's articles in the, in, the, uh, in the papers, and that is the hatred of the rich for being rich. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not an attempt, I think, for, for Linda McQuaig to, to help the poor. It's, it's simply an attempt to get the rich. I, I, I particularly am... It's Marxism, Robert. It's, it's Marxism. But it's astounding that you would suggest that somebody who thinks that we should all live a bit more modestly and so that other people don't starve is greedy, whereas a person who says, no, I should take as much as I possibly can from my city or my country. I should suck as much wealth as I possibly can out of it. That person is not greedy. And He's to suggest that envy the is the only reason why you have a problem with that, I would suggest that most people would say that's just not it's fair. Inter- it's interesting, Jeff. It's interesting the motives that you're putting on, on rich people. I want to be rich myself. I don't think there's do. anybody out there sure, who doesn't do. want to be rich. And yeah. I think the motivation for that is, is to help people. I have a product to sell. I, I bend over backwards trying to please my customers, trying to do what's right for them. Otherwise, I don't make a dime. 
So you say the, so only, the only reason you want to be rich is to help people? Being rich is, is the product of helping people. Okay, that, well, wouldn't people, what, be, helped more if people, offering well, wouldn't people be helped more if you weren't rich, if you handed your wealth over to other people? Wouldn't that help them even more? If your goal is to help people, surely you can do that better. I was interested, though, when you how said that the only to, things that are going to affect to help the wealth... by giving them things that they don't earn? I was interested that you said that the only things that, uh, that relate to your wealth is how hard you work, and I can't remember the other one, but it occurs to me that you didn't mention... Intrusiveness of government. Right. You don't mention the state of the economy at all. Is it your experience that your business is absolutely as successful at the pit of a depression as it is in the height of uh, good economic times? Like, I think that there's a lot more to it than that. Well, no. That's, see, that, that's why you perhaps forgot my other side of the coin, which was the intrusiveness of government. Because I think that what's driving economies is the willingness of people to work and the intrusiveness of government. How they uh, mismanage the economy, how they inflate currencies by printing too much money, how they put up barriers across borders. Three-quarters of my business is in the States and Japan. So if we didn't have governments, we wouldn't have depressions? Is this what you're saying? No, I'm not saying we shouldn't have governments, Jeff. I'm saying that governments should be relegated to the prime function, which is the removal of force from society. And it's exactly the opposite that Linda McQuaig is advocating. She's advocating we use force on those people who, in her estimation, have received their millions on the backs of the poor. But I've... I've Anything that I've ever heard about business is that there is a cycle to business, that it's not that government chooses to suddenly put an economy into recession or anything, that there is a cycle and ebb and flow. Well, that's that's one of the factors. Of yeah, it's a well, maybe, not. maybe business would be, you know, if business ran, uh, ran our world, maybe we would have nothing but prosperity for everybody. But I just find it very hard to believe that. And I don't understand why somebody like uh, oh, Matthew Barrett or somebody would say, I'd like to double my salary this year because I can. You know, I made $2 million last year, but I'd like to make $4 million this year. And I'd like to raise service fees. I'd like to... Uh, keep interest rates as high as I can. I would like to not re uh, lend money to small businesses because they're risky. But that's not a business decision he's making. That's a, that's a, he is protected by the government because of the monopoly position of the banks. That's a governmental problem, not a business well, the government problem. hasn't told me you have to double your salary this year. No, the government no, hasn't said you have to the raise government your has uh, said user you fees. The government has said you don't have any competition. That's what the government has said. Well, that's we, another are, problem. we do not have open competition in banks in this country. Well, and and we if, we did, if we did, Matthew Barrett would not be doubling his salary. I guarantee it. Well, you don't, you don't something from my perspective if I said the same thing that I'm going to make twice as much this year as I did last I'd have to work twice as hard or I'd have to think twice as but I think I think Jeff's point is a good one on that though that he doesn't all he has to do is say I'm going to take more money because the the power behind that bank the ownership of that bank is so diffuse that they have no power well, but again, I, don't, I don't know no this power. person but if he's in control of a bank he's part of the government problem Oh, I don't think the government would want to be associated with that. Because we don't have a free market. <laughs> no, we do. We do. If we did, that's we'd my have, point. Um, that's uh, my we point. We wouldn't have the watch. You would. Yeah, but what I'm saying, the, the point I was trying to make is, I don't think it, Matthew Barrett is a business problem. It is a governmental problem. Yes. If, if, uh, if uh, open the banks up to to uh, to competition, if Matthew Barrett can convince his shareholders in a competitive market that he's worth twice as much money, then more power to him. I submit to you, he will not be able to convince them of that. But because of the Canadian government policies, he doesn't have to. All he has to do is write the check. Appreciate the call, Robert. Okay. Thank you, sir. We have to pause for a moment. We'll be back with more talk of the town, left, right, and center after this. Interesting edition this morning of uh, Left, Right, and Center with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. We've been talking about the premise behind Linda McQuaig's book. Uh, her latest book is called The Cult of Impotence. It's a Canadian bestseller. Uh, selling the myth of powerlessness in the global economy. She basically says that we're kidding ourselves and Paul Martin has kidded us and yeah, we can do whatever we want economically. And we've been discussing that this morning. I want to uh, kind of clear the page for just a second here, guys, and maybe look at this in a historical perspective. Uh, Jeff, you raised the question during the commercial. What kind of 
what kind of country do we, where do we want to be 100 years from now, 50 years from now, if the rich continue to get richer and the poor continue to get poorer? I know Linda addresses this in the book, but the, the, the point has been made by economists, and I've read writing about this too, that 100 years ago the disparity was even greater than it is today. So, so for those who suggest that we're moving in the wrong direction, there are equal numbers who say, no, no, in fact, even though, yes, there's a tiny handful of people who are incredibly wealthy, there always have been, and the poor are much better off than they've been at any time in history. Well, what she says is that, uh, yeah, 100 years ago, we had uh, England under the gold standard, and at that time, there were these huge disparities during the, uh, during the uh, well, I guess the latter part of the Industrial Revolution. She says that what changed that was effectively the two world wars, and she says that that forced England, which was sort of the world power of the day to get off the gold standard and get away from kowtowing all the time to the money traders effectively. And she mistake. said that uh, when that happened, that caused the disparity between the rich and poor to lessen right up until the 60s. But in the 60s, that uh, the trend started to change the other way. And through the 70s, that the disparities have become more pronounced. So she said, yeah, that the, the gap between the rich and poor did become less right up until the 60s, but that now it's growing again. Do you buy that, Bob? I, I have an interesting question to ask, Jeff, and it's <laughs> because of your visit to Cuba. You just told us before the ads that in Cuba they don't have any disparities. Everybody's poor. So, Jeff, there's your ideal society. There's no <laughs> disparity there. Even the yeah, well, minister of the government is poor. I would suggest that this is something that they're working on. But the, the well, what, next what question that you was asked earlier on was, how do people feel about that? How upset are they? Right and are you happier living in a society where you have uh, your, your boss making 100 times what you do? Does that make you happier or less happy? I would suggest it makes you less happy. I'd suggest there's a lot of differences between Cuba and Canada well, in terms of envy, our what you're technological development. Isn't, isn't that what the previous caller said? That, that yeah, sticks and you're, stones you're will break my bones. I don't know why you have to use the word envy. Why is it that the only reason you could possibly be disturbed that somebody is is taking in huge amounts of money, way, way, way more than they work for. The only reason that could possibly bother you is the only envy. Way that can Listen, happen I don't set out each morning to try and rob from my neighbor if I possibly can. That right, let me, make me envious. Let me tell you something interesting about Cuba. I'm probably going to talk about this a lot for the next few weeks because it's so foremost in my mind and it, there's so many things that relate to our society. Jeff raises a very good point, Rob. Uh, in Cuba, everybody is more or less the same. Uh, I, I, I met, had dinner with, had lunch with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in Havana and went to his home. And he lives in a very modest home by our standards. There are Cubans whose homes I visited who are much less nice than his, mind you, so there is still some level of disparity, but not very much. And he makes, he makes no more than, uh, well, some of the street vendors make more money than he does. Um, I have to tell you, though, Bob, and Jeff raised the question, they were very, even the poorest people I talked to were relatively happy. Well, I said that during the commercial, too. I said, I know a lot of pe poor people who are, who are happy. And Jeff said, how far can we allow this disparity to go? In a free society, it will, it will become almost but, infinite. But they weren't happy because they were poor. They were happy because they recognized that even though they were poor, so was everybody else. It's a question well, of fairness. Some they perceive themselves as being treated you know, more or less like everybody else. Well, if you want fairness and equality, the only way you're going to get that through the state is, is to end up with a Cuba. Everybody's going to be poor. They're all the same. They're all poor. Uh, there's no hope for advancement, and that's the style of life you're going to come to. Well, Norway's another from, example. From, from, from cradle to grave. In is that the society in you want to live in? In Norway right now, the average chief executive salary is about three times what the average salary of the average worker Why is. Why do you about keep talking about rich times. people? I want to talk about no, no, poor people. Told me that the only alternative is Cuba and poverty. I would suggest that Norway is an affluent Nordic country. They've done very well, but they haven't chosen to go the route of having ultra rich. They haven't chosen to just sit back and say to people, "If you listen, if you can I rob my pocket, more power to you. I'll just sit back and envy you." I come but back good to my question, you. Jeff. If we were sitting in Cuba right now, the three of us. What would you and Linda McQuaig be telling the poor? 
Well, would you be even worried about it? Probably not. You'd be quite happy. I would suggest no that. Well, right off the bat, you're talking about a third world country compared, and you you won't talk about Norway for some reason that I haven't figured out yet. Well, because because it's you're talking about rich people. You're always talking about rich people. You're constantly because I envy them apparently. Well, <laughs> apparently you do, but but you you do that in the name of helping the poor, and yet you don't even want to talk about the poor. Okay, here we've got a country that's completely poor. Everybody's poor. We're all equally poor. We've got no disparity. We're all equal. There are lots now, of right-wing poor countries in the third world country? as well. What's how the difference? How will we get some wealth into that country? How, how would you start? Well, I'd say the Kretchen going down there is a start. You know, there's so, no reason why they so can't develop gonna, into a socialist model like Sweden, like Norway, like any of the other countries saying? that try Canada to base their to uh, distribution Cuba? of wealth on fairness. There's nothing wrong with suggesting to them you can get technological well, what's more fair development, than you can get industrial development, social development. They're a third world country. That's yeah, why they're yeah, poor. Yeah, 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 and yeah, the fact yeah. they're left wing is not the reason for that. There are lots of very poor right wing countries Do too in the third that world. Wealth just exists in nature. It just sits there, and then we, we, it's just there to be redistributed. Well, wealth is a function of the uh, natural resources that we have, of our industry, of our uh, well, education, of all kinds of all things. That is and entrepreneurialism, that's all one that of the factors. Is people. And but if we had a country that had no natural resources, we'd have no wealth. That's not true. There's a lot of countries that have very few natural resources. Japan's resources. the only one I can think of. Well, even as that, as an example, what, are they, what were they doing right in the respect of that? They saw their natural resources, quote, being people. But I don't think but, you or I have ever disagreed about whether people should get ahead if they work hard. You know, and people should get ahead if they're smart. Yeah, but the question is, far how ahead. far ahead? That's right. Should there be an unlimited horizon that yes, they can take absolutely. everything that everybody else has absolutely if they're smart there enough? Should be. And you composite a person who is such a hard it's worker and such a smart guy otherwise. that he can get everything. Is that the kind well, of society you want to live in? I'd say no, I don't like that society. I you, like you a society know, that's fair. I heard you describe describe a typical rich person as somebody who sucks the wealth out of the poor. Well, no, I didn't. Or, I never or, said or that. out of society or out of the middle. Yeah, you said sucks the wealth. I believe you said that this morning. That's exactly the term you used. That, to me, tells me how you think about wealth, you know? Like, say, say I'm a, a rich newspaper mogul or something like that. I don't get wealthy by, by sucking the wealth out of people. I get wealthy by sucking the little nickels and dimes out of them, the little things that give them something greater for that little nickel or dime than what they spent. And because all of those dimes accumulate around my effort, I become rich. If I did the not economy make is one where rich people get richer and poor people don't get any poorer and middle class people don't get any poorer, I would agree with you, but that's not the world we live in. I, I, I need a question answered from both of you guys. We've been talking about the rich getting richer. As though what they as though they have a vault somewhere and they're putting in a pile of gold and and they're yeah, just Scrooge filling McDuck. just filling yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> I, I honestly believe half the population thinks that that's what that that's what wealth well, is about Jeff I want to ask you what when somebody does get richer and richer Matthew Barrett for example what do you think what do you think that money does has he got a money vault somewhere what does he do with his money well his money probably goes to the Cayman Islands and he's got a good Canadian lawyer who will make sure that he doesn't have to pay any tax on it what he'll probably do is have a lot of it invested in, uh, in stocks, which have seen huge increases over the last number of years. He'll have a lot of it invested in, um, he probably will be playing a variety of different things, but, but one of them that? will be money speculation. Sure, sure. But that, that money in the stock, so he buys some stocks then. When he buys that stock, what happens? What, 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 is that, what does that enable? Is that just a piece of paper he buys? No. It, well, if you buy a stock, it means you're giving money to a company. The company can use to the money however they want. They to can do choose what? to invest in infrastructure if they want or research, or they can pay it out in a dividend. They can do whatever they want with it. In Canada, we don't put much into research. Well, they don't, they don't pay their investments out in dividends. Your company doesn't last very long if you do that. Companies but they can. You know, if you're buying stock in a company, you're buying ownership of the company, and the uh, management will decide what happens to it. Well, if, the you, if you don't like better the management, you fire the management. Your stock sales, it better be coming from your profits. Well, Bob, I want to ask you the same question now. Where do you think his money goes? What does he do with it? Well, the money, 
money does not sit static in a mattress somewhere or in a Scrooge McDuck vault where it just sits for somebody to use it. If it did, it would have no value and it wouldn't be working in the economy. Money, all money is constantly, constantly being churned through the economy doing work. What that company does with that investment is invest it in either capital, which you need in order to, for labor to be productive, it may invest it in the labor, it may hire more people, but that money gets used for productive purposes, which in turn creates more wealth, which is why the so-called rich seem to be getting richer, because they are generating that wealth. They're not taking it from someone else, they are creating it. The idea that all the skyscrapers in North America and all the, all the wealth that, that exists in this country existed forever and ever is is an absolute farce. I mean, 200 years ago, there wasn't a single skyscraper. If that wealth was already there, how did the skyscrapers come into existence? There's a lot more gold in the ground. There's a lot more oil in the ground. A lot more trees in the ground. Those things aren't made out of gold and oil and that represents wealth. Money is just a symbol that represents something you you have or could have. That's all it is. Well, it basically represents the amount of productivity that that you've contributed to society, basically, and that's one way that we measure it. Money's not the only way, but it's it's certainly the way that we measure, you know our interrelationship of ec- economically. Okay, one of the it's ways we, one of the ways we measure yeah. our economic success here in the radio station is by co- uh, 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 communicating with you important messages from our sponsors and here are some. I would be remiss if I didn't make some mention of what's happening later today that you're involved with with the alternative or what's the what, what's the terminology for the budget? The yeah, alternative budget. Alternative budget. Yeah. Uh, can you just give us a quick thumbnail of what that what that's all about? Sure. Yeah, within about the last three or four years, there's a group of economists and uh, uh, other folks who have gotten together to prepare an alternative budget, both for the federal budget and for the provincial budget each year. And they usually release it a week or so prior to um, the government's budget coming out. So today we're releasing the uh, provincial budget. And what the budget uh, does basically is pose alternatives for people to remind them that we have choices about the way that uh, government spends money. And uh, so with respect to the provincial budget today, there are a variety of things that they're saying we could do differently. And again, these are economists who prepared. I, I don't purport to know the details of how they work it through. But uh, one of the things that, uh, the biggest points that they make or that struck me was, they said that if if my carrots had been stuck away in a closet for the last three years, then our deficit would be gone a year sooner than it will be with him being in government. And the main reason for that is the tax cut. And they talk about the tax cut and how uh, their research shows that uh, 60% of the money that uh, uh, is involved in the tax cut is being paid to or is not being uh, asked for from the highest 20% of wage earners in Ontario, and effectively it's a huge redistribution of wealth, that that 60% uh, when it was involved, when it was taken in in taxes and spent in social services would have been distributed presumably proportionally. So they, they, dis- they discount the, the potential effects of that money in terms of reinvestment in creating the new jobs that have created this prosperity that, have, that they w- agree it's it's been the prosperity in the province that has that has uh, that has moved things along. Not Mike Harris. Well, it's striking that uh, I had to go back and I've dusted off my common sense revolution uh, to have a look at it. And it's interesting that uh, when the government proposed the tax cut, they said this tax cut is going to dis- is going to uh, uh, weaken our economy. It's going to uh, take money out of the economy. And in fact, they had set up a 650 million dollar fund to cope with some of the effects of the uh, deflationary effect in the economy. And the reason for it, they said, was that they recognized that when that money was in the um, hands of government, every penny of it was going out. Every penny that went into welfare, for instance, in London was paid to a London landlord for rent, was paid to a London uh, shopkeeper for groceries and so on. And they, they themselves acknowledged, that, uh, Mark Mullen was the name of the economist who, uh, who drafted this part of the Common Sense Revolution at U of T. He said, you know, 
when we hand a big chunk of this money over to wealthy people, they're not going to invest it into our community because these are people who don't need to. These are people whose lifestyle is such that they don't need extra money to live on. What they'll do is they'll invest it. And again, if they have good lawyers, they won't be investing it in Ontario. They'll be investing it offshore because they won't pay tax on it that way. So they recognized that the tax cut was going to prevent job creation in Ontario. And in fact, I've got an article from uh, Jeff Rubin, uh, chief economist at CIBC Wood Gundy, who said that the biggest impediment in economic recovery in Ontario the biggest thing preventing us from having the same recovery the United States is having has been the tax cut. Uh, Do you believe that? This is the same one of these bank guys that you're mad at for making yeah, all this man. money. They're the only ones who have the time to no research this stuff. <laughs> how, can you, how can you even say that they're taking money out of the economy? The economy I'm just telling you what that. the economists are telling us. Well, then dismiss those economists immediately because <laughs> if they're telling you they're taking money out of the economy, where is it going if it's outside the economy? That's like saying, That's it. It's gone to the like Cayman saying, Islands. But that's still in the economy. It's in the Not world our economy. economy. So you well. so you mean specifically the Canadian economy? So you're worried yeah. about foreign investment? Why no, I'm worried about Ontario's take, Ontarians taking money that right now is spent in Ontario and instead choosing to spend it in the Cayman Islands. That's 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 yeah, what they said. Lower taxes, right? I, I happen to agree so with what they're saying, taxes. but this is my idea. This is their idea. So you've got Jeff Rubin. So we need lower taxes. You've got uh, exactly, Mark Mullen. Just, that's the argument. Mark Mullen had said as well that uh, the the uh, thesis upon which he had uh, posited the tax cut was to say that uh, at the same time there shouldn't be government spending cuts. If there are government spending cuts, then that's the, then effectively that again worsens the uh, the drag. Now our economy is doing well, and the reason it's doing well is that we have an industrial economy that's heavily based on exports to the United States. The states is doing extremely well, so we're doing well, but we're not doing as well as they are. Our unemployment still is up uh, at uh, around 8%. And, and when you think about it, you know, for, we've had three years now of Tory government, and I think about, forget about the poor. We know the poor are much worse off. We know the rich are much better off. Well, but how is the middle class that. doing? And has that. the middle class, we've had three years now of economic prosperity. Is the middle class getting raises right now? Are things generally better for them than they were three years ago? And for the average person, I know they're not. They're no. putting their kids in private schools because uh, they've lost confidence in schools. They can't if get their kids cared for in hospitals. We we've got street people that we didn't have three years ago. Before we get the benefits of the cure that we've been going through. You know, the, 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 the cure is worse than the disease, no, I suggest. Well, that's not so. <laughs> you know, this, is, this has been always one of the problems with the political cycle. When you want to fix a problem, for example, that the Ray government caused, the beneficiaries of fixing that problem won't happen until maybe one or two uh, governments passed Mike Harris. That's when we're going to see the results, unless well, we change our minds again because we're tired of taking the cure. Again, that was the theory uh, about the massive uh, increases in uh, interest rates back in the late 80s was they were going to kill inflation for all time, and ultimately it was tough medicine, but it would be good for our economy, and it didn't happen. They, they overdid it. They overkilled the economy, and we've been paying the price of that ever since. Well, there's always an argument of too far, too fast, but I, I, I dismiss that argument because it's still a matter of direction. That's what we're talking about here is which direction you go in. And I think the issue is that you have to have lower taxes. And I think that uh, whether, whether the top 20% of people want, those, want that money or not, is really not the issue. But it comes back to fairness. Taxes is what I would call taking the money out of the okay, economy. Gentlemen, we've run out of time. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, uh, you're suggesting people should read this book. Yeah, it's a good book. Very Bob, readable. do you think they shouldn't or should they read it? And, uh, I think they should so that they can understand Marxism as it's applied to the Canadian <laughs> economy. All right, it's Linda McQuaid's book. It's called The Cult of Impotence. It's been discussed this morning by Robert Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. Uh, my guests as they are every Wednesday on left, right and center. Thank you, gentlemen. A pleasure. Great to be back today. Good show yeah, today. Thank you, Jim. We'll see you again uh, a week from today, and we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow we have a number of guests with us. We've got a bunch of open phones, too. We're going to be talking about, among other things, diversive or diversification in sexuality, mm -hmm. dealing with stress in the workplace, 
uh, men's role in society today? Is it as bad off as some men would like us to think? All this, open phones, and a lot more on the next edition of Talk of the Town. For Jeff and Bob, for Ryan and Tara, it's Jim saying uh, it's great to be back. You have no idea how lucky we are to live where we do. And we'll see you tomorrow.